So Halloween has just passed. Um, I've been pillaging my kids' candy for the last couple of days. And uh, I'll never forget when I was about eight or nine years old, my brother and I went trick-or-treating in the neighborhood. And there must have been like a sale that week on, at CVS on Now and Laters, because like that night, we came home with like pillowcases full of Nalaters. That's how you pronounce it. Nalaters. We came home with like two pillowcases full of Now and Laters. And um, for lack of better judgment, uh, my parents let us go crazy in the basement and eat as much candy as we wanted to. For the next hour or so, my brother and I unwrapped as many Now and Laters as our hearts and our stomachs could hold. And that next morning, we were sick to our stomachs, both of us. My dad tells the same joke. He'll tell it after service today. Uh, you eat the candy now, you get sick later. <laughs> That's why they call it nine laters. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. I won't lie. It fits now and later. But to this day, if I smell, like for real, if I were to smell a banana now and later, I would have a violent reaction to that smell. Here's a lesson that I learned painfully that night. The freedom that I had to indulge in my appetite without limit wasn't really freedom. As a matter of fact, it was just the temptation for me to be my own greatest enemy. Bite by plasticky bite, I was eating my own destruction. Now, since that day, unfortunately, it hasn't just been now and laters that has been something that I've let go unchecked in my life that has led to my destruction, that has led to pain, that has led to me trading in my character. But there have been other things in my life that by themselves are not bad, but left unchecked, they will lead to your destruction and to your ruin. I was thinking about a, a bunch of appetites that we all have. Some of these appetites are acceptance, intimacy, Sex, inclusion, respect, recognition, progress, stuff, more stuff, new stuff, stuff you got rid of and won again, <laughs> responsibility, achievement, winning. Now, in and of themselves, none of these appetites are bad things, right? Like, it's a good thing, for example, to want acceptance. God has created us socially to belong. One of the most painful things that you can experience is when you do not belong to anybody, to be rejected. And ex although acceptance is a, is a really good thing, uh, I can think about a number of times in my life where in the pursuit of acceptance, uh, I traded in my character. And by me obeying my appetite for something without limits, it led me to some really bad places. I'll never forget my freshman year at Morgan State in Baltimore. And uh, I hooked up with a bunch of New Yorkers as soon as I got down there. And all of my friends were from some really cool neighborhoods. One of my friends was from Marcy Projects in Brooklyn. My other friend was from Edenwall in the Bronx. My other boy was from Polo Grounds. And I grew up across the street from a lake. <laughs> and I couldn't quote my block. There was no block. <laughs> to get acceptance in that crew. So what I did is I really put on a whole new persona and I became a pretty fake, tough guy trying to earn acceptance from people um, at my school. And I put myself in some really terrible situations. It is God's grace and God's grace alone that I wasn't uh, really hurt, and I didn't get my friends really hurt by doing and saying a whole lot of stupid things. It's not that acceptance is a bad thing, but left unchecked, 
The pursuit of acceptance, the pursuit of anything without a boundary, will lead to your demise. So our appetites are so challenging for all of us because you know what? They just they feel so right. A lot of times we think about the challenges that we have, and if you were to write down a list of all of the challenges, all of the forces of evil in this world, most of the things that you would write down right now are outside of you. They are the people who watch that other news network. But one of the greatest enemies you have is not them. It's not something outside of you. It's something inside of you. It's your appetites, and left unchecked, they will lead to your destruction. But it's so tough because your appetites—they just always feel right. When it's 11:30 and you walk to the cabinet and you open the door and you see the Fritos, it always feels like a fantastic decision to say yes. I'm going to eat. I'm going to body these these Fritos. Like there's never been a time when you've been hungry and you see the thing that you're craving and you say, ah, I don't want that. Inside of you, whether or not you do it, it feels like it would be so right. So as we're in this series, this embodied series, connecting our faith to our bodies, one of the things that we're trying to do is get a handle on how do we navigate and manage and handle our appetites. Sometimes for good things, sometimes for things in excess. But what does our faith have to say about our appetites? And what would it mean for you to follow Jesus with all of the appetites that you have? Good news and bad news is,、uh, although your appetites are not necessarily bad. In a lot of ways, your appetites are never going to go away. Like there's no sermon that you're going to hear where your appetites are just going to be diminished forever. They're going to be with with you for forever. And I'm afraid that we really underestimate the power that our appetites have over us. So three truths about your appetites. Three truths about my appetites.、Um, number one, God created them, and sin distorted them. God created us to have appetites. Like God's plan A for your life is for that you would desire things. The distortion of our appetites is that these things oftentimes are now without limit, without check, and by obeying our appetites,、um, we should never let them run wild. You know, I was thinking about it this week. Your appetites are like that one friend that you have that is always down for whatever. <laughs> like if you didn't pay your rent, your friend is like, "Yo, we out tonight," and you're like, "All right, I guess we're out." We outside, and you're like, "Hey, we outside. No rent, but we outside." <laughs> That's what your appetites are like, because they're always going to encourage you for for more. So God created them and sin distorted them. So th- this is what this means: a major part of your faith journey, no matter where you are in your faith journey, if you're brand new to what it means to follow Jesus, if you've been rocking with Jesus for decades,、uh, a major part of your faith journey will be m- managing. And dealing with your your appetites. So here's one scripture in 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 27, which is very appropriate on Marathon Sunday. He says this: a man named Paul. He says, "Don't you know that the runners in a stadium or New York City Marathon all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes. This is a, a plain truth that Paul says. Everybody who competes, all 50,000 of them." They exercise self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So here's what Paul says: So I do not run like one who like one who runs aimlessly, or box like one beating the air. Instead, here's what he says: It's a major part of his faith journey. I discipline my body and bring it under strict control, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
Here's some really profound truths from Paul. Paul is basically saying that I have, like, Paul has really great theology. He would write these letters to churches to put their theology in check. Not only did Paul believe the right things, but Paul was teaching the right things. Paul says that despite the fact that I, I believe the right things, and despite the fact that I'm teaching the right things, the thing that I really need to do is to get my appetites in check and to keep my body under strict control so that after I preach a message to all these other people and everybody's retweeting my YouTube uh, sermons, that I myself would not be cast away or disqualified. What's the disqualification for Paul? Is it that his sermon wasn't a banger? Or rather that he himself was not doing the very thing that he was preaching to other people. And he sees this as a paramount part of his faith journey, that one of the ways that you and I connect our faith to our, to, our, to our bodies is whether or not we are able to keep our bodies under strict control. In order for you to follow Jesus faithfully, we need to get our appetites in check. Number two, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. So number one, God created your appetites. They're not inherently wrong, but they have been distorted. Number two, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Now, this is really important because a lot of us believe this really dangerous lie that if I just had fill in a blank, then I would be like really happy and really content. The problem with that is um, once you get anything, you're just going to want more. Have you ever had a meal where you were like, yo, I'm not eating for the next week. And then they're like, you want dessert? You're like, I'll take a look at the menu. <laughs> Doesn't hurt. And that could be like a 15-minute window. But all of our appetites, they only know one word, more. They are never fully and finally satisfied. So if you believe that if I just had this one thing, I would finally be satisfied, that's a lie. You know, I talk a lot to church planters and pastors, and one of the things I tell them is that I, I hope, and this is actually what Jim Carrey said one time, Jim Carrey said, I hope that everybody gets really rich and famous just so one day they would realize that becoming rich and famous is empty. Some of the most miserable people, people in the headlines these, these weeks, are people who have hundreds of millions of dollars. Once upon a time, they probably did believe that if I just made it, if I had the scene, if I had this many Twitter followers, this much money in my bank account, then I would be satisfied. But then they get there and then they're imprisoned by their appetites because they've gone unchecked and a desire for more. You know, one thing I've learned in, uh, in the 10 years of therapy that I've been in is that uh, my therapist told me one time, Jordan, there are different kinds of people when it comes to verbal affirmation. There are some people, they're like little espresso shots glasses. Like that's all they need is a little bit of affirmation and they're like, man, that was great. Some people are like coffee cups. Some people are like coffee, um, the whole jug of coffee. Me, she said, you're a coffee carafe. You feed like <laughs> 30 people of, of affirmation. So for me, honestly, there's like no ending to it. It's like, man, I would, like, when someone gives me affirmation, I'm like, keep going. That was good. <laughs> it was. How good was it? <laughs> really? Keep going. Don't stop. Please don't. <laughs> now, affirmation is a really good thing. And honestly, one of the things that we are trying to recover at Renaissance is that we want you to be truth tellers, real truth tellers. And real truth tellers don't just tell people negative things about them. Real truth tellers see positive things. They see godly things. They see amazing things in someone, and they verbally say it to someone, and it doesn't give people a big head. But affirmation is a good thing. But what happens if your desire for affirmation is unchecked? 
you will do some pretty dangerous and some deplorable things just to get it. And I know I'm speaking from experience. Here's what the scripture says in Proverbs 13, 25. It says, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is always in need. It's never full. It's never satisfied. Now, one of the things that's interesting even about the devices that rule our lives, our phones, uh, and our social media feeds, uh, one preacher said it like, isn't it interesting that they call social media a feed and you're never full? It's the endless doom scrolling where you think you're going to hit something that makes you feel better and you feel worse. You feel more and more empty the more you do it. Our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Number three, our appetites always whisper now, never later. They tempt us to choose the immediate over the ultimate. Now, one of the things that is really um, a challenge to the way the appetites speak to us is they come from the inside and they're in a lot of ways screaming to us that you need to do this thing and you need to do it now. Now, we're going to go to a portion of scripture here in the book of Genesis, which talks about appetites. But before we do that, I really want to make a really big caveat that there is a difference between an appetite and an addiction. Appetites are something that you can handle on your, not on your own, uh, appetites are some of the things that you can handle when you do the things at the end of the sermon, you'll be able to get a good hold on your appetites and be able to grow. Addictions are things that really are bigger than just your own willpower. Anybody who's ever dealt with addiction knows that these are way bigger than your willpower. You don't just decide to overcome an addiction. Now, by God's grace, we believe, I was, I was talking to a brother earlier today, uh, who was telling me that uh, he just celebrated one year sober, and we were praising God just now in the lounge for him and his life. And y'all can clap for that, my brother. Uh, he was mentioning that he, was, he had done the 12-step program and all of those things, and uh, is still obviously uh, following up with all of these different things. But you need more. Like, if, if what we're talking about today, if something rises to the surface and you realize that this is probably not just a, um, an appetite I have for something, but this might be an addiction, I don't want you to stop at just the, the advice we give at this message you probably need to reach out to someone. You need, surround, you need help around you, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking for help. One of the things that is probably the most destructive is that by asking for help, that makes you weak. By asking for help, that makes you strong. By admitting that you can't do it by yourself, that is the strongest thing you can do. One of the things I would love for you to do if you're struggling with an addiction of any kind is to email us at grace at renaissancenyc.com, and one of our deacons will reach out to you about helping plug you in with a program or a counselor or something like that. And listen, that, that would be the strongest, bravest thing you would do is by reaching out for help. Amen? Amen. So uh, I want us to uh, turn to Genesis 25, and we're going to look at some appetites uh, here that have gone unchecked for one of our brothers in Scripture, a man named Esau. And I hope it's going to give us a little bit of an anatomy of what our appetites could do to us if we do not put them in check. Genesis 25, starting at verse 27, it says, When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac, the father, loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah, the mother in the family, loved Jacob. Once Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me get some of that red stuff, because I'm exhausted. This is why he was also named Edom. 
Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, Esau said, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Let me give you a little context for those of you not familiar with the story. Uh, this story uh, has about four people, four characters in it. Uh, a father and mother named Isaac and Rebekah, and their two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, in ancient Jewish custom, their like, economic system was all about inheritance. And they had the economic system of something called primogeniture. Primogeniture basically meant that, in their custom, that the oldest son inherited the majority of the estate. So in a case where there were two sons, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get one-third of the, state, the estate. So in ancient Jewish culture, like the way you got, got wealth wasn't like how hard you worked. It was 100% based on the inheritance that was left to you. So Jacob's only way of upward mobility was getting more of the estate. So Jacob and his mother devised a plan that they would trick their brother to get uh, more of the estate from, from Esau. And they do this in this text, and we see Esau do something that a lot of times modern people read this text, and they say, like, who would trade their birthright for a bowl of stew? Like, what was in that? Was it, that was like some, some gumbo from New Orleans? Like, how good, how good was it? All of us would. All of us have. All of us have traded something really important for something that was like right in front of us that promised to satisfy us. All of us have cut corners on our faith and our integrity. All of us have taken the short way when we knew the long way was the way we were supposed to take. All of us have said yes to the invite that we knew we shouldn't have said yes to because it was something that promised to, to satisfy us. So here's what we see in the scripture, ways that you know that your appetite is ruling you. And it is a dangerous thing for you to be a person who is ruled by your appetites. God wants to do something in your life. God has good things for you. I was listening to a song this morning. Uh, they were quoting Psalm 23. I was walking down the block, and they were saying, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy. God is chasing after you with goodness and mercy. And if we would slow down and let that goodness and mercy catch up with us, we would realize eventually that God's plans for our life are good. One of the challenges is, for many of us, for all of us, we are going to be tempted with things that promise us something right now. And we will be tempted to trade right now for something that is ultimate, that, something that God wants to do in our lives. So here's some um, really sobering words uh, about you know that your appetite is ruling you when, when you believe that you have to have something. When you believe that you have to have something, um, or you have to do something. Verse 32, Esau comes in the room and he's like, yo, I'm about to die. And it's like, well, I mean, the human body, if you were walking around, he'd probably eaten a couple of days before that. We can go a couple of weeks easily without eating food. He wasn't like about to die. He might have felt really hungry, but it was an exaggerated need for him in that moment. And it's really fascinating that if you, from the outside, when you see someone who has this appetite for something, that inside of them, it feels like it's an ultimate thing that they need to have it and they have to do it immediately. But on the outside, you can see how foolish that is. Have you ever had that with a friend? 
who has just this, this overwhelming desire, this overwhelming appetite for something, and you could see that it's destroying them, but you know that by even giving them advice, they're not going to listen because to them, they have to do it. And that's a really dangerous place to be in because it overpromises satisfaction. Uh, our appetites overpromise and they underdeliver. Uh, years ago, um, I was on the Metro North um, coming home from a bar, uh, bar preparation class. I was taking a, taking a bar exam, and shout out to everybody who's awaiting those New York, uh, New York State results, hoping and praying that y'all, y'all pass. And uh, I was on a train, um, and I was sitting there reading one of these books, and this one guy who was a lawyer saw me reading all of these bar prep books and started chatting me up. And he said, oh, you know, studying for the bar, and I, we started talking, and I started asking him about, you know, his practice and, you know, what he thought the profession of law was like. Now, I'm on a train at about 11.30, and he was telling me that he was, like, just leaving the office a half an hour ago. And I was thinking, like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe busy season, right? He was like, no, this is every day. This is every Monday to Friday. And I was like, well, you know, you're a bachelor, so you, you can do your own thing. He's like, no, I have a wife and two small kids. And I didn't have the boldness or the privilege or even the, the right, the permission to say this to him. But the whole ride, I was just so bothered because he was telling me about how much his wife was always at his throat and how much he never saw his kids. And he was missing everything about them in their lives. And I was thinking to myself, who would trade your family for another position at the firm? Who would trade that? Like, who would trade... Your family, you only have one. You could have a million different jobs. Who would trade a precious moment with your kids for a couple extra dollars? All of us would. Left unchecked, all of us would. All of us, our appetites, if they are ruling us, they're telling us that we, we have to do these things. In our lives, um, there's been so many times that we've been tempted to trade a lifetime of integrity for a bowl of stew, for something that looks so good right there in the moment. And your appetites, if they're telling you you have to do this, they're a liar. One of the greatest things that you can do is to bring your appetites to the surface of your conscience and to confess it to close friends, spiritual mentors and advisors, and ask them, is this the wisest thing to do? That's the question we're going to ask ourselves. Is this the wisest thing for me to do? And if the answer is no, then know that your appetite is tempting you to participate in your own destruction. If Esau would have asked himself that question, is this the wisest thing for me to do? The answer would have been, of course not. But you know your appetites are ruling you when you feel like you have to do something. Romans 8, 12, and 13 says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is talking about here in Romans is this law of sin and death. When you and I sin, when we miss the mark, something dies. That sounds deep and heavy, but the reality is this. We've all seen this in every single relationship. When you sin against your friend, you see a little bit of the closeness in that relationship die. When somebody does something against you, you told them something in confidence, and and they put your business out on the street, a piece of your friendship died. When there is sin, death is sure to to follow. By God's grace, he can resurrect all things. However, we are not obligated to the flesh to live by the flesh. So then the question, the better question is, what are we obligated to? Who are you obligated to? What are you obligated to? 
For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the answer is pretty simple. We are obligated to live our life, not for ourselves, but for God and for God's glory. Regardless of what it feels like in the moment, regardless of what we want in the moment, that is our obligation. So number one, your appetite is ruling you when you believe you have to do something. Number two, your appetite is ruling you when you discount the value of what wise living would do for you. Here is a profound question. He says this, verse 32, Esau says this, what good is the birthright to me now? And it's a really tricky question the way he says it, because his question is, what good is his birthright to me now? And the answer to that is nothing. It's actually not worth anything to him right now. But it will be of immense value to him later when he actually needs it. What value is your character to you now? I don't know. What can it do for you now? But it will be of immense value to you later. Uh, one of the things that personally has been one of the biggest impediments and the biggest appetite inside of me to, um, to feed is an image. Now, an image is a good thing. Scripture says that a good image is, a good name is worth more than gold, right? Being thought of well is a good thing, and we should desire to be well thought of and to have a good image, but not based on some fake external appearance, but actual real integrity in your life. And I've seen this in my life, and I've seen this in so many other people uh, in their life. They don't want to trade a good image, a good perception of themselves for real character and real integrity. So they take their problems, they take their issues, and they hold them. And they put them and they throw them in the junk closet and slam the door as tightly as possible. Some of these people have been in church renaissance since launch Sunday, and nobody knows anything about them in a real way. They're holding it because they prefer their, they prefer their image over what real character would give them in their life. And the question that they're asking themselves, the question I ask myself in those moments is, what benefit is character to me in this, to me in this moment? Well, in the moment where I, where I bring out my junk from the closet and, and share it with somebody, in that moment, it feels like death. It feels terrible. It's of no value to me in that moment. But what would my life be like if I was constantly taking a fake image over real character? What would your life be like? So Esau asked this question, and you can fill in the blank with whatever um, is the, the current appetite facing you right now. What good is this birthright to me now? What good is saving now? What good is it to not order another round now? What good is abstinence now? It's a very little good to you now, but it will be of immense good to you later. So your appetite is ruling you when you believe you have to do something. Number two, you discount the value of what wise living would do for you. That's the question we're asking ourselves. Not what do I feel, but what is the wisest thing that I can do in this moment? And bring that to other people. Number three is you end up hating what you didn't follow. Now, this is a piece of uh, the story that, by God's grace, most people don't get to this place. But when they get there, I've seen this happen on a number of occasions, it is a very dangerous place to be. So in verse 34, after Jacob got the bread and lentil stew, Esau, he ate and he drank. And the scripture says he got up and went away. And in the last line, it says, so Esau despised his birthright. What would make you despise the thing that was meant to be your financial security later? All of us have a, a cognitive dissonance that we don't like to feel uncomfortable with anything. And I mean, our brains are literally set up to make us feel more and more comfortable. So it's easier for us to end up hating a good thing than it is for, than it is for us to acknowledge that we lost a good thing. 
By God's grace, God can bring, God can redeem all of the mistakes that we have made in our lives. God is a redeemer. He is redemptive. One of the scriptures that I love in, in the New Testament is a story about a man named Peter, where Peter has denied Jesus over and over and over again. And Peter leaves, uh, he leaves Jesus, he leaves the following because he thinks that he has blown it. He has given it all away. Jesus comes and restores him, lays his hand on Peter, and 50 days after Peter's worst failure, Peter is preaching, and thousands of people become Christians that day. God can redeem your story, but not until you first face him with uh, the, the reality of our, of our mess. But here, here's the truth that I know to be, that I've seen a hundred times. 99.999% of the crisis of faith that people encounter has nothing to do with beliefs. It's not a blog that they read. It's not a it's not a sermon that they heard. It all starts with behavior. They gave away something. They went against the grain in one way. The way that they knew they were supposed to be following Jesus, they didn't do it. And it was more comfortable for them to end up hating Jesus and hating everything than it was for them to admit that they had made a mistake. This is what we see here in Esau's life. He despised his birthright. Why? Because it was easier for him to hate the good thing than to admit that he was, uh, he was wrong and he had made a mistake. So, for you right now, the question is, what, is, what is your bowl of stew? What is competing with God's will for your life? What is the thing that looks so good right now? It looks so good. It looks so attractive. But you know there's strings attached to it if you were to really think about it. Now, here's uh, what I want you to do this, this week. Um, as you're thinking about your appetites and the things that uh, would take you astray and the things that are just always going on inside of us, the first and most important thing we need to focus on is this. You and I need to fill ourselves with good things. You need to fill yourself constantly with good things. A lot of times, like, I, I really do feel bad for people who miss out on worship services. Uh, our team works very hard to craft meaningful exposures to the gospel and encounters with God. And, and I feel bad for people when they miss prolonged, when they have prolonged absences from gathering together. There's a reason that scripture says, do not forsake the assembly of the saints, because there's something here for you. And one of the best things you can do, not just coming to church, but overall, fill yourself with good things. My brother Jay Stringer in his book, Unwanted, talks about for, for men and women battling unwanted sexual behavior. He says, one of the best things you can do is to go out at the height of your temptation, is to go out for a delicious meal with close friends and spend some time just delighting in each other's presence, laughing like crazy, eating good food. Why is that? Because it is not that God wants you to be miserable and just stuff down all desires in your life. No. God wants you to fill yourself with, with good things. And to the degree that we are able to fill ourselves with good things, man, that, that gives us so much more ability to say no to things that we have, um, that we shouldn't be, should be doing. All of us have gone food shopping when we're hungry, right? I went to Costco when I was hungry one time, and I bought a crate of peaches. <laughs> and I'm allergic to peaches. <laughs> I got home, and I was like, yo, as soon as I took, like, one bite of my sandwich, I was like, what was I thinking? And they just sat in the corner and rotted, uh, rotted away. Here's a quote that I know to be true. We all eat lies when our hearts are hungry. We all eat lies when our hearts are hungry. There's some mornings, honestly, when I see the temptation for me to have an image or for approval or affirmation or whatever it is, and I'll sit down and I'll read some scripture and I'll let Romans 8 wash over me. 
that nothing in all creation, neither heights nor depth, nothing um, can separate me from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And I see the fickle affirmation and the fickle approval I have of other people compared to what God has already given me in Christ. And I'm like, yo, I don't, I don't even need that anymore. But we have to fill ourselves with good things. Like when we push stuff like you should join a DNA group, you should come to service, it's not because we're just trying to appease ourselves by, that we feel better for you showing up. But there is something good for you. We have, there are good things for you, and we want you to fill yourself with, with really good, good things. Uh, number two, so fill yourself with good things. Number two, and this one is a, a painful one. For those of you who follow Jesus, we need to clarify why you follow Jesus. There's a scripture in John 1 where Jesus is walking and two disciples are behind him. Jesus turns to them and looks at them and says, what do you want from me? Parenthetically, Jesus asks us all that same question. What do you want from me? Most of the time, we don't realize what we want until we don't get it. Isn't that the truth? We don't even realize why we were following Jesus until he didn't give us a thing that we were actually in search of. One of the challenges is, is this. Many of us in this room... You have an appetite for something that someone else has, and it's a good thing, and it's a good appetite. But for whatever reason, the answer for you right now is not yet, or it might be no. Here's the question. What if Jesus never gives you that thing? Is he still good? Is he still worth following? In my darkest moments, I'm struggling with my late wife is battling cancer. I remember thinking, like, Jesus, if, you, if she doesn't get healed, I will never start a church. I'm not even going to church. The litmus test for God's goodness was that he would do something for me. A good thing, a great thing. Healing is, is a beautiful thing. Life is a necessary thing. But the question remains for all of us. What if the answer is no? Is Jesus still worth following? And I think that we would all do ourselves a favor by trying to clarify, can God only be good if he says yes to you? And if the answer is no, um, we need to grieve. We need to grieve the tremendous losses that we are experiencing, for sure. We need other people around us, but we need to clarify why we are following Jesus in the first place. You know, one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible comes in the book of Job, where Job looks at God, in all of, after all of the things he had lost, he lost his family and money, and he himself was afflicted with so many bodily pains, and Job looks up to heaven and says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Our appetites may or may not go filled, and one of the things that we need to do, if we're going to be people who follow Jesus recklessly in the way that he deserves to be followed, is to clarify why we do that. Keep praying, keep asking God for those things. But, you know, one of the things my wife and I were talking about the other day is, you know, if you go on social media, you'll see so many people saying, got the apartment, God is good. Got the new job, God is good. I've never seen someone post, got rejected for the 19th time for the show, God is good. As if God's goodness depended on our current day-to-day circumstances. So we need, we need to separate those two things um, and grieve our losses for sure. So... Number one, we need to fill ourselves with good things. We need to fill ourselves with the gospels that remind us who we are. Number two, we need to clarify why we follow Jesus. Number three, we need to fortify ourselves with community. You were never intended to walk through life to be a mature Christian by yourself. To the extent that you are isolated, that will limit your growth right there. 
You might learn a whole bunch of truths about God like this is Jeopardy, but you will never grow to a mature disciple unless you have been fortified by community. It doesn't need to be 100 people, but it does need to be a couple of people who know the real you, who you can tell them, I am struggling with this appetite and this appetite, and I need prayer, I need accountability. Accountability is a beautiful thing, and this is what I hope exists in our DNA groups. Uh, when you tell somebody you're going to do something and you know they're going to check in with you the next week, you're like way more likely to do that. If I tell my DNA group, I'm going to have a difficult conversation with this person on this day, and I need you to check in with me next week to make sure I do it. That day when I wake up and I'm like, well, do I need to have a difficult conversation with them? I know I have them checking in with me. So I'm so much more likely to actually do the thing, not because I'm strong, not because I'm wise and amazing, but because I just know that I have accountability checking in. So in your DNA groups this week, we want y'all being honest and open and vulnerable. Uh, and for those of you who are not in DNA groups, we want you making sure you are connected to the, as much as possible in this community. People need to know you, and they need to know the real you. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And I want us thinking about that bowl of stew in our lives. And I actually want us to have about 10 seconds of silence. And I want us thinking about um, the proposition. Am I willing to trade what God has for me, the unknown of what God has for me, for the thing that's promising me immediate satisfaction? So bow your heads right now. What is, what is your bowl of stew? What is the appetite that's raging to the surface that you know if left unchecked it would lead you away from God, away from God's will, So God, our Father, you know our strengths, you know our many weaknesses, you know our needs, you know our desires, you know the longs we have in our heart, the good longs that we have in our heart that have gone unmet. And Lord, I pray that you would fortify us and give us the strength to follow you, to make the decision to do what is the wisest thing, not as what is the thing that we, we want to do. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.